Today I'm reading from Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the reading of the word. Are you weary this morning, worn down, burdened by the weight of the things in your life? Maybe this morning it was all the struggle in the world just to get the kids dressed and out the door so that you could maybe be on time. Maybe work this past week was just completely crazy and uh, it felt like you were in way over your head and you just couldn't wait for the weekend to get here. Maybe you serve in a ministry, maybe a grace group, children's ministry, ministry in the community, whatever that might be, and it's difficult. It often feels fruitless, like nothing's coming from it, and you wonder, is it even worth it? Maybe your health is failing, and doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment starts adding up and, and, and lining up together, and you say, is there any end in sight? Maybe life is just really hard, right now. In this season, this time, maybe life is just really difficult, and you come this morning and just feel weary and burdened and weighed down by the things in your life. Well, that's what this text is addressing. Let us not grow weary of doing good. You say, how, how is that possible? How can we not grow weary in doing good? And Paul tells us here in these verses that the, the way to do that is by finding strength in his word, by pursuing holiness in our lives, and by doing good to those around us. Now make no mistake, in these things we can still grow weary, we can still be burdened, we can still grow tired even in these things. But it's the only place to find true rest for our souls. So we come this morning to really what is the conclusion of Paul's main argument in the book of Galatians. It's the conclusion of the body of this text that uh, we'll, we'll see next week the final thoughts, and there's still much there that's applicable to us in Paul's final thoughts. But nonetheless, this kind of ties a bow on much of the thought that's been prevailing throughout the book of Galatians. And you say, okay, how is it that he kind of starts bringing this thing to a close? How is it that he starts drawing this most magnificent letter in which he has extolled the heights of the glory of the gospel of Christ? How is it that he begins to draw that to a close? It's by telling us to be generous with our lives, particularly financially, but to live with generosity because we have eternity in mind. That's what he says here. That's part of bearing one another's burdens. We saw that last week in verse two. Bear one another's burdens. That's part of doing good to those around us. It's part of applying the truth that he's been expounding for these whole six chapters of the book. So we'll see where he goes. But first, would you join me in praying? Father, we come before you and we confess that many of us are weary, worn down, and burdened. And I pray that for those this morning who are coming in like that, that you would satisfy them with the rest that only you bring. Lord, I know there are some here who are maybe comfortable in the midst of their uh, sins, and I pray that for them that you would afflict the comfortable, 
but I pray you would comfort the afflicted. That for those here who are uh, burdened and weary, you would give them the comfort that comes from knowing Jesus. And that for those who are here maybe too comfortable in their sin, that you would call them out of it to pursue you in holiness. Lord, we pray that your will would be done, and we thank you that you have told us your will in your word that your will is that your word will do its work and it will not return to you void. And so I ask, Lord, that this morning as your word is preached, however feebly from my talents, that you would use it to do your work in the life of your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, th- we see three elements to this passage, three exhortations that Paul is giving us, three things we need to keep in mind to help us not grow weary of doing good and not give up. And the first one of these is that we see the need for good teaching. We see the need for good teaching. Pick it up in verse six. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Believe it or not, this is actually one of the more challenging verses for me to preach to you. Uh, It will seem a little bit self-serving because here's what the verse says. You are to support particularly financially, the one who teaches you the word of God. Martin Luther summed it up well, I think. He said, I do not like to interpret such passages, for they seem to commend us preachers, as in fact they do. In addition, it gives the appearance of greed if one emphasizes things diligently to one's hearers. But nonetheless, there is clear biblical warrant for paying those who preach to you. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 and Luke 10 that the laborer deserves his food. And even though Paul said at times that he voluntarily did not take a salary, it was also Paul who said in 1 Corinthians that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This sentiment that's expressed here in Galatians is not new, nor is it that radical in the New Testament faith. Those who are taught the word of God should make sure that the one who teaches them the word of God is cared for, and this happens in the context of a local church. And I want to just say thank you, because church, you do this remarkably well. You care for myself and Dan to make sure that, we, uh, that you share all good things with us, you support us, you encourage us. And so I just want to say thank you and, and say that uh, you model what this verse looks like. I can't tell you how thankful I am to have a church who cares for me as your pastor and cares deeply about the word of God being preached. And so what I want to do is spend just a couple of moments uh, saying, in, in light of that, you do this well, but why is it that we do this? Why is it that this is important? Why is it that this matters? Why is it that you walk in and, and put some money in the offering box back there? Why does that even matter? And, and what we'll see is that it's not so much about the money as much as it's about the message that is being sent with that money. What's the message that is being sent when we say, okay, we're going to share all good things with the one who teaches? It's the message that we care so deeply about the word of God and being taught the word of God that we're willing to put our money where our mouth is to make it happen. Paul says, the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches, meaning this should only be true of those who teach to you faithfully God's word with diligence, accuracy, faithfulness, clarity, And this is because God's word is to be treasured. The teaching of the word of God is of utmost importance, not only in the life of individual Christians, but the life of the church. There is nothing more central to the gathered church than the preaching of the word of God. And so there's nothing then that's more worthwhile for you or I to invest in than that. See, there are many good things that a church might do. There are many great ways that it might serve. But I want to tell you this, that no matter what a church does, no matter how many great ministries it has, if that church is not founded on good, faithful teaching from the word of God, that church will not be growing in health after Christ. It's central to our community as believers. God's word has always been God's chosen instrument to do God's work of growing God's people. It's always been the way it's set out. Think about creation. How did God bring the world into existence? By his word. How did God create Adam and Eve? By his 
word. How did God raise Lazarus from the dead? By his word. How does God raise you and I from the dead spiritually? By his word. How does God build us as a church? By his word. It has always been God's chosen instrument to do his work. And so we invest in that. It's a mark of faith, really, to believe this. Because let's be honest. There's a, let's put it this way. If you were to look at your past week, how you lived in the past week, and rank hour by hour by what seemed to be most tangibly productive, what seemed to bear most fruit immediate that you could see, I would guess that you would rank the preaching of the word of God at or near the bottom. And I can say that because I preached last week. We don't often see the fruit that comes of this. It doesn't happen immediate. It's not tangible like me might want to think. I don't know if you're like me, but one thing I've noticed is that with the advent of streaming services, my patience has gone down. Because now, if I'm watching something on TV and I have to watch commercials, I get upset. In fact, just this week, I was watching that. I was going to watch it, it was like an hour-long episode of a, of a TV show. And at the beginning of it, there was a 15-second ad. And that 15-second ad had me questioning whether I even wanted to watch that hour-long show at all or not, we don't have patience. We only really give our time, we only really give our attention, we only really give our energy to the things that seems to be producing the most fruit right now, here and now, that I can see. That's why it's a mark of faith to believe this. Do you believe that God will do his work by his word and on his timetable? It's a mark of faith. One of the telltale marks of whether you really believe this is by how you approach the word of God. And by financially supporting the one who teaches, you are sending a message. You are putting your money where your mouth is. See, you can't just say, well, I really believe that, but I'm not willing to take the money out of my pockets or to put my pockets in the seats. Then how much do you really believe it? I could tell you all I want. Oh, yeah, Notre Dame's going to win the first game of the season, but I'm not going to put any money on that. So it tells you just how much I really believe that. I don't believe it. That's why this is so important. It's not about the money, but about the message. It's about sending the message of what we believe in God's word. Because think about the context into which Paul wrote these words in Galatians. This church, these churches in Galatia are overrun with false teaching. There's been an outbreak in false teaching in these churches. And so Paul's been dealing with the whole letter. That's why in chapter one, Paul came out with such fiery force that we, we really don't see anywhere else from him, that he says, if anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ, let that person be damned. That's why in chapter two, he goes on to say, these false teachers are those who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. That's why Paul called out Peter, because he said, Peter, you're not living in step with the gospel that you proclaim. That's why the bulk of this letter in chapters three and four have all been about, about meeting that false teaching head on. Where these false teachers are going around and they're saying, hey, you, know, you need to add circumcision, you need to add works of the law, you need to do these things in addition to believing in Jesus. And Paul comes along and says, no, it is by faith alone that a person is justified. A person is not justified by works of the law. It's not about what you do. It's not about how much you do. It's not about the work that you do. It's not about the, the company that you keep. It's not about how much money you give. It's not about any of those things. It's about faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's why he says in chapter five then that these false teachers are those who are hindering the Galatians from running well and obeying the truth. And it's within that context that Paul says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Because you want to know how to wage war on false teaching? You want to know what the antidote to false teaching is? You want to know how to, to do something about that? Good teaching, faithful teaching, true teaching about the word of God. The battleground over this is when the false teachers are saying this and someone else comes and, and starts teaching from the Bible that's not true. Let me tell you what is true. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what God says in his word. And so the antidote to false teaching is good teaching. That's why Paul says to them, uh, the one who's teaching you the word, make sure you support them in doing that. Make sure you care for them in doing that. Otherwise, you're going to be overrun with lies. 
See, this is exactly the way Paul tied it together in his address to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that about scripture? Do you believe that about the word of God? That it is sufficient to do God's work in the life of God's people? If so, here's what Paul tells Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do you really believe this about scripture? What do you do? Preach it. Listen to the word being preached. Be ready in season and out of season. There's a a time where the word will seem to produce a lot of growth, and there's a time where the word will not seem to produce any growth, in season and out of season. Be ready. Preach the word. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Sound familiar? There's all sorts of messages coming in at each one of us each week. How do you combat those things? The Word of God. Rightly, faithfully teaching the Word of God. There's no better investment you can make than in this, and that's why Paul continues. We'll get to there in just a moment, but he says in verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. See, what Paul says is about sowing and reaping. What he says then is that the way that you live now really matters for eternity. That if you use your money on worldly pleasures, if you indulge the desires of the flesh right now, if you live for selfish gain and just say, I'm going to use my resource, I'm going to use my money, I'm going to use my time, I'm going to use everything that I've been given just to indulge my sinful desires, then you're sowing to the flesh. But if instead you use your resources to ensure that God's work is done, that and included in that is to ensure that the teaching of the word of God continues, you're sowing to the spirit. Because if we really believe this is true about the word, then we want a well-prepared meal. You can spot the difference between a meal that, is, that is, is labored over for hours and a meal that's thrown in the microwave, can't you? And you can tell the same thing when it comes to the feeding of the word of God. The reason why you financially support the one who teaches you is because you want that person to be freed up to have the time to study and to prepare the meal to feed you. Jesus tells Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I do, Lord. Well, then feed my sheep. The way the pastor tells his congregation that he loves them most ultimately is that he faithfully labors in preaching the word of God and feeding them from his word week in and week out. It is not then the sign of incredible spiritual maturity if a person's able to just throw together a sermon in a few minutes and not take a whole long time on it. That is actually the sign of someone who thinks far too little of God's command to feed his sheep. H.B. Charles has said it well when he says, a passion to preach without a burden to study is a desire to perform. We don't need pastors who'll just come and say whatever they think. Personal life experience is not what gives a pastor his authority. Having some good ideas is not the basis for why you should listen to a pastor. You should listen to him only and if he heralds God's word with clarity and faithfulness. And so invest in the church's teaching of God's word. So it means to be a good sermon listener. You ever think about that? How do I do do well listening to this sermon? Well, one of the ways is by investing in it. And this involves playing the long game because it involves trusting God's word to do his work even when we can't see it moment by moment. Because the things that we can see around us don't always look like much. You, You stop and consider, okay, over the past week, what fruit did God's word bear in my life? We're looking from, through our human lenses and we don't see a whole lot. See, most every other thing in our lives seems to produce more immediate, visible, tangible fruit than the preaching of God's word, at least looking through a worldly lens. But that's why Paul says, do not be deceived. We can easily deceive ourselves. We can easily trick ourselves into thinking, well, this, this must not be worth it because I can't see these things. So hey, this must not be worth it. Do not be deceived, dear friends. Paul uses the imagery of sowing and reaping 
to teach that growth is not immediate. But it is certain. Just like you won't have growth unless you actually plant, unless you sow, you will not have growth spiritually immediately unless you begin sowing. See, verse 7, let, uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What we see here is the need for personal holiness. It's the need for personal holiness as we follow after the Lord. In verse 7, he establishes a general principle, you will reap what you sow, and then in verse 8, he kind of fleshes that out with a, an illustration of what that looks like. You will reap what you sow. We get this instinctively. We understand this. Um, some of you are farmers in here, and you know that if you sow, let's, let's say you sow, sow corn, what are you going to reap? Corn. No farmer goes and starts selling something and expects, I'm going to reap something totally different unless you don't know first what you're selling. But that's why God gives us his word because he tells us exactly, here's what you're selling. If you're doing this, you're sowing that. If you're doing that, you're sowing this. Right? He tells us that so that we know. And then don't be deceived. Don't, don't start thinking, I'm going to sow this and all of a sudden something totally different is going to come up. That doesn't work that way. God has not set it up to work that way. And so he tells us, here's what you're selling. You have uh, two fields you can plant in, two fields you can sow in. One is the field of the flesh. One is the field of the spirit. And if you sow to the flesh, guess what you are going to reap? Fleshly fruit, as is described earlier in chapter 5. The works of the flesh are evident. And what will it lead to? You will reap corruption, destruction, devastation, damnation. That's what the works of the flesh will lead to. That's what sowing to the flesh will lead to. And in chapter 5, it says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you sow to the Spirit, guess what you will reap? The fruit of the Spirit, also described in chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that leads, he says, to eternal life. So Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked into thinking that. Earlier in chapter 6, in, in verse 3, he talks about those who deceive himself. You don't want to be the person who goes around where boasting yourself up, he says in verse 3, when everybody else around you can see uh, you're just full of it, right? But you're, you're just kind of, you're, you're deceiving yourself, and we don't want to be the person who is deceived eternally. We don't want to be the person who, who comes and, and deceives ourselves into thinking that God must be different than who he really is. God must not act in accordance with his word. God must be lying when he says you will reap what you sow. We deceive ourselves into thinking like this. It doesn't happen that way in farming, and it doesn't happen that way in Christianity either. And yet, we think God will act contrary to who he is and will act contrary to his word. We tell ourselves all sorts of lies and deceive ourselves about who God must really be. We just want to feel better about our lives, and so we start lying to ourselves about God. God's a God of love. Surely he wouldn't send people to hell. Yeah, I think all roads really lead to God in the end, and in the meantime, we should just try to be a good person. God doesn't really care about this situation that I'm in right now. He's more concerned about those big things like adultery and murder. So as long as I'm not doing those things, he doesn't really care about what I'm doing here. I know God's commands, but if I'm in trouble, so is everybody else in the church. So maybe I'm just too hard on myself, and God's going to have to let some of this slide. You know, I just want to have some fun right now. I just want to enjoy myself. I'll get right with God later. And we tell these lies and all sorts of others to deceive ourselves. See, when God says that the road is narrow and not many pass through it, we think that what he really meant was that it's a broad way with many roads to heaven. When God says that the wages of sin is death, what we think he really meant is that you'll live, just try to be a better person. When God says he might call any one of us to give an account for our lives at any time, we think what he really meant is that he won't do it until we've lived a good long life of 80 years. When God says that only the pure in heart will see him, we think what he really meant was that not only the pure in heart will see him. 
When God says, be holy as I am holy, we think what he really meant is you can't be holy, so don't worry about it. Paul writes these words so that we would not be eternally deceived ourselves. These things have eternal implications. We see the one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. And when we deceive, when we're deceived, we are mocking God. Whenever Paul uses this language of do not be deceived in his writings, it is always in warning against sin. And the sin he is warning against here is mocking God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Why? Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God is not lying when he says that. God will not change his mind about what he has said. You will reap what you sow. Maybe you're able to fool your parents sometimes did some things that they don't know about and you hope they never find out about. Maybe you're able to fool your teacher. You got away with some things because you knew they weren't looking. Maybe you're able to fool your spouse. You know they won't find out about what you're looking at on the computer. And yet all of us think we can fool God. We think he's not really seeing this. We think we can hide from his sight. We think we can hide from his grasp. We think he doesn't really care. We think out of sight, out of mind. But as Alistair Begg put it, you can fool all of the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people all of the time. But you cannot fool God at any time. You can't trick him. You can't escape his, his grasp. You can't go somewhere where he doesn't see you. We think that we can live however we want, we can sow however we want, we can do whatever we want and not reap the consequences that come from it. And if you think like that, you're making a mockery of God. And this obviously includes our view of and approach to Scripture. Because we mock God when we think God's word is not sufficient to do God's work. But I think this principle is also more broadly applied than just that and can extend to all of our lives. Every part of our lives, this principle is true. What you sow, you will also reap. In every decision that we face, moment by moment, every choice that we make, you have two choices. You can sow to the flesh, or you can sow to the spirit. Sowing to the flesh means that we indulge the desires of our flesh. It means that we follow our natural desires and instincts. It means that we, we, we run after the things that it talks about earlier in chapter five, the desires of the flesh. And you sow to the flesh every time that you do something the word of God forbids. You sow to the flesh every time you embrace those natural sinful desires, even if they seem ones you were born with. You sow to the flesh every time you click on that website to look at what you should not. You sow to the flesh every time that you disobey your parents. You sow to the flesh every time that you arrogantly boast about how great you are and envy what someone else has. You sow to the flesh every time you lash out against your spouse in anger. You sow to the flesh every time you participate in that unwholesome talk that around the lunch table or the water cooler at work or at school. You sow to the flesh every time you harbor bitterness in your heart toward your neighbor. And he says, those who sow to the flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. And yet I wonder how many, even this morning, in this room, are those who are living their lives, indulging the desires of the flesh, sowing to the flesh and assuming I'm still cool with God. Sowing to the flesh and thinking from that I'm gonna reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The world around you wants to tell you that we are victims of our circumstances. Centuries of psychology and sociology have both combined to tell us that we're, we're simply victims of those around us. That it's, it's the things around us, the people around us, the, the situations around us that cause us to do the things that we do. And if those were removed, well, then we'd be in great shape. But that's not true. You remove those things around you and you come to find out that my heart is still bent toward evil. The problem is not that we are helpless victims of our circumstances. The problem is that we are traitorous rebels against the God of the universe. If you right now are sowing to the flesh, are you surprised that you might reap corruption? If you right now are living your life in sin, are you surprised when you find out you're given over to that sin? 
You who are choosing unholy actions, are you surprised that you're not becoming more holy? The problem's with us, it's our hearts, indulging the desires of the flesh, this war that rages within us, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. We're indulging the flesh. But Jesus the Christ is the one who came and broke the chains that bind us. Galatians has been talking all about this freedom that comes in Christ. It is this freedom from the curse, freedom from our sin, freedom from our flesh, freedom from this corruption. This is the Christ who really does break the power of canceled sin and the Christ who really does set the captives free. This is the Christ who came for you and I, traitors against his rule, those who are sowing according to the flesh, those who are indulging the desires of the flesh. And this is the Christ who came and he reaped what we had sown and he bore the corruption on our behalf. He bore the death that we deserve for us. And Paul is absolutely right. All of Galatians has been testifying to the fact that you will not be right with God by works of the flesh. You will not be right with God by the things that you do, but only by faith in Jesus Christ alone, the one who tasted of death and reap the fruit of what we had sown to bring us life. But the Bible is also clear that those who belong to Jesus, those who truly believe in Jesus, will also be transformed to be like Jesus. It's a growth that happens over a lifetime, but we are growing more and more into his image. And that happens through moment by moment choosing to sow to the spirit rather than sow to the flesh. Holiness is a habit that must be cultivated over a lifetime. Christ frees us. He enables us to really sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. He frees us up to be able to do this. And this is not a matter of, okay, now you go try harder to be a better person. Because here's the, here's the, the thing that scripture teaches all over is that actually you trying harder to be a better person so that this can get me right with God is actually sowing to the flesh and not to the spirit. Sowing to the flesh is when I think I can do it in my own strength. I have it in my own ability to do it. So I'm just going to try harder, be a better person. I'm going to do good so that God will be pleased with me. No, that's sowing to the flesh. Sowing to the spirit is rooted in faith in Christ that says all of this, all the good that I do is only because of, in, and through Jesus Christ because of what he's done for me. And so all of our sowing to the spirit has to be rooted in faith in Christ or else it's not really sowing to the Spirit at all. So you remember the context of what we've been looking at here in Galatians is all about walking by the Spirit. Look at the language that he's used. 5.16, walk by the Spirit. 5.18, led by the Spirit. 5.22, fruit of the Spirit. 5.25, live by the Spirit. 6.8, sow to the Spirit. Do you see he's wanting you to live a life that's in accordance with the Spirit of God? that when he takes up residence in your heart, you live in accordance with him? And so the question is, you who have been redeemed by Christ, are you walking by his spirit? What that takes is sowing to the spirit. You say, what does that look like? Well, we sow to the spirit when we spend time reading the Bible. We sow to the spirit when we spend time in prayer. We sow to the spirit when we come to church and spend time together as a community. We sow to the Spirit when we listen to the preaching of God's Word and, and, and invest in it financially. We sow to the Spirit when we bear one another's burdens. But we also sow to the Spirit in the, the everyday moments of life that pop up at work. At work, you're confronted with the choice. Am I going to, in this moment, right now, sow to the flesh, or am I going to sow to the Spirit? You're confronted with this when you're scrolling through social media or flipping through channels on TV or browsing what music should I listen to. You're confronted with the choice. Am I going to sow right now to the flesh or am I going to sow to the spirit? These are active choices we make as we pursue personal holiness, wanting to be made more like Jesus. Think about the person that you, get someone in mind that you say they're the the godliest person that I know the person who looks most like Jesus, the person whose faith is exemplary to me, think about that person and ask, how'd they get there? It was because day by day they chose, I'm going to sow to the spirit rather than to the flesh. It's because they didn't grow weary in doing good. When faced with a choice on how to respond, they chose, I'm going to walk by the Spirit. I'm going to submit my natural desires. I'm going to submit the the, the desires of the flesh, and I'm going to instead choose to sow to the Spirit, living by faith, trusting that God's way is best, even if I can't always see it clearly right now.
That's how they got there. They didn't get there by, uh, as they were reading through scripture, they come to a second part of the book of Exodus and say, actually, you know what? Life's pretty crazy. I'm just gonna maybe not read that. And then I'm gonna hop around to maybe two or three of my favorite passages a couple times just to kind of get me through. It's not how they got there. They got there by saying, okay, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna persevere. I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna choose in this moment, I'm gonna sow to the spirit, following after the Lord. It involves patience. It involves perseverance. But it's what God requires of us who follow after him. I'll give one example of this. And uh, we'll keep the theme of the word of God going since we saw that in verse six. You know, she so often does, Jen Wilkin has a very helpful way of thinking about this. And she gives the illustration that we typically approach Bible reading with a debit card mentality. We go to the Bible each, you know, each morning. Let's say you go to the Bible and you say, okay, I'm gonna get 10 minutes and I'm gonna withdraw whatever I need to just make it through today. And so you go to the Bible, debit card, all right, here, I'm gonna get this, all right, 10 minutes, we're good. And then what happens is, well, you read the book of Leviticus and you say, okay, I don't know, I don't know how that helps me where I'm at right now today. And so we give up trying. She says what we need is instead of a debit card mentality, we need a savings account mentality where every day we're faithfully placing a deposit placing a deposit and placing a deposit and saying, Lord, even if I don't see the tangible, visible fruit of it right now, I'm going to place a deposit and trust you're going to bring that fruit in your time. It might take months, years, decades before you see that fruit really come to fruition, but it's trusting God day by day to say, okay, God, you know best. And so I'm going to keep following you and trust you to bring the fruit in your time. We trust God's timing. And what that means is we need to play the long game of discipleship. We need to play the long game of discipleship. Personal holiness is a habit that is cultivated over a lifetime, which is not immediate. So it requires trusting God, following his word, being intentional about sowing to the spirit rather than to the flesh, and patient perseverance in loving and serving others. Look at verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We see third and finally the need for doing good. We need to be taught the word. We need to pursue personal holiness, but we also need to do good to those around us. And what we see in these verses is that this principle that has just been established, you will reap what you sow, is not given as a warning. For some of you today, it might be a warning. You will reap what you sow. So if you're sowing right now to the flesh, that should be a warning to you. But Paul gives it here actually as an encouragement. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Why? Because in due season, you will reap. This is an encouragement to the weary, an encouragement to the burdened, an encouragement to those who just feel like giving up. Because what God says here, he is not mocked. He, do not be deceived. What you sow, you will reap. And so when you are sowing to the Spirit day by day, even if you feel like giving up, keep going because you will one day reap. That's intended here as an encouragement to us. Let us not grow weary of doing good. So let me ask you, are you worn out from doing good? Are you worn out from the good things that you've been doing? Between trying to keep up with the kids, steal maybe a few moments with your spouse, run around to all the different events that are going on, work a full week, come to church on Sunday morning, then go to your grace group, and then try to serve the children's ministries however much as possible, you know your life is overwhelming, and then you still hear about more and more and more needs that need to be done. We all know what it's like to work like crazy at something, and then to see the, the, the results come of it, and then for others around us to say, hey, you know what, that's good, but what about this? And you say, did any of that even matter? Did this thing I just devoted all my time to, did that do any good? Is there any fruit that's coming from it? Or is it just more, 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 more? You know what that's like. As you serve faithfully in the various ministries that you're in, maybe you're a grace group leader. Maybe you serve in the children's ministries. Maybe you uh, work with students in small groups there. Maybe you serve in other community organizations, whatever that might be. In the ministries that you look at, you kind of look around and you start saying, well, is anything coming to this? 
Maybe you don't see them, as many people coming as you used to. And that's because you know there are some who are kind of running astray. And you know that the people who are here, you're not seeing the growth that you want to. You're not seeing them really grab on to what you've been teaching. You're not really seeing the life change that you wanted to see. And you start wondering, does any of this even matter? Am I making any difference? Or maybe you look at your own life and you are weary because that temptation just doesn't seem to go away. No matter how many times you sow to the spirit and say no to the desires of the flesh, that temptation remains and you're worn down from the fight. Or maybe it's the sin that seems like it has nine lives and just won't seem to die. Maybe it's you look around and you get frustrated by your circumstances and, and worn down and you get to the end of the day and you say, well, I'm just going to skip my Bible reading and prayer today because I'm not really sure if that even matters. Is it going to make a difference right now? And you get worn down. See, brothers and sisters, we can easily just keep going and 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 push and push and push and easily grow weary of doing good. But Paul's encouragement to us is you will reap what you sow. This will produce the fruit in your life that God intends for it to produce in God's timing, so keep going. I'm convinced that we will never make it in any ministry, whatever ministry you're served in, I'm convinced that you will never make it in ministry if you do not have a patient perseverance to play the long game of discipleship. You'll quickly grow defeated, quickly grow discouraged, because growth doesn't happen as soon as we wanted to. We need this reminder. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Friends, ministry is hard work and it is slow work. We tend to think a church can just change overnight. In fact, it takes months and most often it takes years. We tend to think a Christian can just change overnight, but most of the time it takes months, if not years, for that to happen. And so how quickly we give up when we think the, res the results must be immediate. Think of how crazy a farmer would be to go out and, and sow the seed and then kind of sit back and say, okay, why is nothing growing? I think of in the office when Michael Scott sends his proposal to corporate and uh, he sends it in and he kind of sits down right after he, he clicks send, sends the email and uh, he sits down and 10 seconds goes by and he's like, ah, you know what, I probably should give him a call because they're not responding. That's the way we're like when it's so often in our lives. We think the results should be immediate, and when they're not, we grow discouraged. So we must have a patient perseverance. I like what John Piper has said when he said, if you have to see a tree fall every time that you pick up an ax, you will spend your life on little projects. So friend, keep doing good to others. Keep serving them, keep loving them, and do not give up. But I wonder if one other way that we grow weary of doing good is because we are completely flooded with any number of needs on a momentary basis. That's one of the pitfalls, the perils of our interconnected world, the technological age that we live in, is that we are aware at any given moment not only of the needs that are around us right now physically, but that are the needs that are all over the world at every place. And it quickly becomes crushing to think about all the needs out there and how could I possibly help with any of them. Bear one another's burdens. Okay, but I can't bear everybody's burdens in the whole world, so what do I do? Don't grow weary of doing good. Okay, but I can't do good to everybody, so what do I do? And for those who really want to help, for those who really desire to help others, that can easily become crushing, and that can be the source of your weariness as well. But I think that's why verse 10 helps us out on that. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You say, okay, how do I, how do I know who to help? Well, first, he says, as you have opportunity. So do good as you have the opportunity to do good. Okay, that's the first thing we see here. Let's be real. There's plenty of ways, plenty of needs that are out there that you can't help with. Maybe that's physically. Maybe it's the location. Maybe it's financially. Maybe that's skill set, whatever it is, there's many needs you can't help with. Let me give you an example. If you were to call me up and say, hey, Josh, 
something's going wrong at my house or on my car. Can you come help me? I would say no. Not because I don't have a desire to help you, because I don't know the first thing about how to help you. A few weeks ago, when I uh, used the illustration in my sermon about the hammer, John Rowe, afterward, he told me, uh, that was a great sermon, but I just cannot picture you using a hammer. And uh, uh, no truer feedback has ever been given on any one of my sermons. You're not able to help with everything. You don't have every capability. You don't have all the financial resources. You don't have all the skill set. Here's the question. Do good as you have opportunity. Okay, that's asking, okay, God, how have you gifted me? What have you given to me that I can use to help other people? That's the first thing. Second, let us do good to everyone. Okay, so not only is it as you have opportunity, but now it's do good to everyone. You say, okay, well, wait a second. This seems like you're just heaping that burden back upon me to help everybody. Okay, well, here's what it's getting at. Do you have the eyes to see the needs around you? I'm not just talking about those few people that you really like. I'm talking about those around you. We'll see even the second part of this verse makes it clear that this everyone includes believers and non-believers alike. That coworker, that neighbor, that friend, do you have the eyes to see their needs? Do you know what burdens they're carrying? Do you know what things are weighing them down? Do you know the ways in which they need help? I'm not asking, are you the one that's going to help them? I'm saying, do you see those needs in the first place? We should have a desire to help. We should have a desire to meet those needs. We should have a desire to serve and do good where we have opportunity. But it involves having the eyes to see how we can help. And so as we look around, those eyes should be specifically trained on the church. Do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the third thing. Do good especially to fellow Christians. This word household, just like brothers in verse 1, is a reminder that we are family. This is the family of God. And you know how this plays out with your family. If your kid comes asking for help, you're going to be far more likely to help them than you are your coworker. If your brother comes asking for money, you're going to be far more likely to give it to him than you are the stranger you just met. We get it that we're going to be more instinctively to help our, our family. And that's the way that we are to treat the church. You're, you're, they're looking to do good to everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. But those eyes are specifically saying, okay, how do my brothers and sisters here at Grace, here in this room, here at church, what are they needing? How can I help them? How can I serve them? And Jesus says that by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you want to send a message to the world about that we follow Jesus? Love one another well, especially those who are of the household of faith. We're to be good stewards of our lives, the entirety of our lives, the things that God has given us. Are you investing in the things that really matter, matter for eternity, that are making an eternal impact by trusting God to work by his word? That will be showed, among other things, by the ways that you financially invest in the teaching of God's word. Are you investing in personal holiness and growth toward Christ-likeness? That will be showed by the way that you sow today to the flesh or to the spirit, because you will reap what you sow. And are you investing in loving others and serving them well? That will be showed by the way that you persevere in doing good and don't give up. But all of this stems from a commitment to Christ, to knowing him more. It stems from a commitment to his word as the means by which he works. It stems from a commitment to his promises that you will, in fact, reap what you sow. It stems from a commitment to trusting his character that you know he will bring about the results he has promised. Therefore, keep going, keep loving, keep sowing, keep obeying, keep trusting, keep walking by his spirit, and trust that he will do his work. Trust that one day he will bring you to complete Christ-likeness that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, and you'll be made like him. Keep trusting. Don't grow weary. Keep going. Have you ever had a meal that uh, when you eat it, you're instantly reminded of home? Your childhood, mom and dad, fond memories. That as soon as you eat that meal, you're reminded of it. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is the taste of heaven, our true home. What we taste right now are the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. 
and we'll be with Christ and share a great meal with him for eternity. So let us not grow weary from doing good. We have to understand the Christian walk is one that is more easily prone to discouragement than we might often like to think. This growth is slower than we might like, and the work is weightier than we might think. See, we have right now a, an enemy who seeks to thwart these efforts. We have a world that doesn't seem to want them, and we have a flesh that wars against them on top of it. You see how easy it is to grow weary of doing good? So you say, what do I do? Friend, run to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the one who said to his followers, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of you who are weary, all of you who are burdened, all of you who are weighed down by your life, come to me, and I'll give you the rest that you long for. You who spend your time doing good to those around you, don't forget that this must stem from a heart resting in, trusting in Christ and his goodness. This is the Jesus who gives living water to satisfy your thirst. It's the Jesus who gives living bread to satisfy your hunger. It's the Jesus who gives eternal rest to satisfy your weariness. It's the Jesus who did not give up, but he persevered in doing good, going all the way to the cross for you and for me. And because of that, he has reaped a glorious inheritance and is still calling people to himself, gathering his children. He reigns, and he calls you to run to him, to come to him. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, and we close with this, Isaiah says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, we thank you that you are the one who does not grow weary, that you, do, you are not weak, you're not tired, you're not worn out, and we can come to you and find rest. We thank you that you invite us to come to rest in you. I said, Lord, I pray that we would walk by your spirit, so to your spirit, and not to the things of our flesh, not indulge the desires of our flesh, but walk after you. I pray, Lord, we would be committed to your word, we would be committed to pursuing you in holiness, that we would be committed to loving one another and doing good to them, and that all of this would flow from our hearts, trusting in, resting in you. You are the joy of our souls. You deserve all praise. And only in you can we find the rest that we really long for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.